Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. This is a very special GodPod today because um, this is uh, one involving uh, myself and Jane Williams and uh, Professor John Lennox. Uh, you may well know of um, Professor John Lennox. You may have heard that uh, John Lennox came to deliver one of our McDonald lectures here at St. Melitus College. And um, uh, as part of that, Jane and I engaged him in conversation. And uh, you're about to hear the God Pod, which is the conversation between ourselves and John. Um, following a lecture he gave on um, why the new atheists are missing the target, where he looked quite a bit at um, issues of science and faith, issues of uh, contemporary atheism, where that's coming from, and how Christians respond to it. My first question is, um, what's it like to debate with Richard Dawkins? Fearsome. <laughs> it's a terrifying experience, actually. And um, uh, words like formidable and so on come, come to imagine. I don't know how ever I came to do it, in fact, and I don't think he does. And I remember that as we walked out of the wings in Birmingham, Alabama, by the way, and Dawkins insisted on having an armed guard, he thought he was going to be in trouble. So they gave me one as well. So for the first and last time in my life, I had an armed police guard. So as we came out from the wings onto this huge stage, and of course the place was packed, he said to me, he said, you know, I don't debate. And I said, well, if it's any comfort, I don't either. I said, I'm going out there to try and discuss ideas that I hope will put a credible alternative to your atheism. He said, I'll buy that. But it is a daunting experience. And the debate in the Natural History Museum in Oxford, where he came swinging at me very strongly, that was, that was enormous pressure. They're, they're, no, they're no fun, these things because I take them very seriously. I believe there's an immense spiritual battle involved. And, you know, you realize what's at stake. I had thousands of, of Christians around the world praying for me. And you get this sense of enormous responsibility. Are you going to blow it? So it was a very formidable experience, yes. We'll try and be a bit friendlier tonight. <laughs> oh, I don't mind, really. I mean, just to follow up that with one question, um, you were talking uh, in your uh, lecture about um, the way in which, the, in some ways, the more you do science, the more you actually wonder at the, the goodness and beauty and glory of the world. And yet, I guess one of the, 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 the atheist arguments uh, against that is to say, actually, the more you do science, the more you realize how, how sort of troubled and, and, and flawed the world is. And I mean, going back to Stephen Fry, as you were mentioning, earlier on, I think that was part of his kind of a critique, wasn't it? I mean, this is what he said, I think, in his, um, his uh, sort of statement earlier this week. How dare, this is, this is addressed to God, how dare you create a world in which there's such misery that is not our fault, it's not right, it's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? And you can see the, you can feel the, the kind of the, the, oh, the anger I, I, in I that. Oh, I can understand it. As I mentioned earlier, I watched the thing in Auschwitz. What I didn't say was, I've been there many times, and I've wept every time. This is, in one sense, the hardest question we face. 
And many of my friends and colleagues are atheists because of it. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And if you want, I can say one or two things about it, but it's, it's really a topic for an entire evening. But l- let me just say something about it. There are two sides, uh, there are two problems. There's a problem of natural evil, earthquakes, um, tumors in the brain, the things we're not responsible for that Stephen Fry was referring to. Then there is moral evil, the bad things humans do to one another. They are to be separated from one another, although one can lead to the other. You know, human greed can deforest an area and the next generation starves. So moral evil leads to natural evil. Secondly, there are two perspectives. It's one thing to be an oncologist. It's another thing to be told you've got five months to live. You've got cancer. And we've got to deal with this, it seems to me, in in, in two ways at once, and that's very difficult. Because in any average audience, you have the people who observe suffering, like Stephen Fry's comment, and you're the people who are experiencing it. So how, how do we deal with it? I don't find it easy. But then I don't find atheism helps at all. Because if you take the atheist route, as many of my friends do, I understand that. But I say, now, what have you done? You think you solved the problem. That's just what the world's like. DNA just is. We dance to its music. And you think you've come to an intellectual conclusion that gives you some sort of resolution. But the suffering's still there. You haven't solved that. The pain's still there. What you have clearly done is removed all hope. Now, if you're right, of course, and you may be right, this is very bleak. And Richard Dawkins, when I pointed this out to him, said, yes, it's very bleak, but that doesn't mean it's false. I said, Richard, it's very bleak. That doesn't mean it's true either. We've got to settle it on some other basis. So the atheist route creates a lot of problems. It creates the problem I mentioned very briefly earlier, because we talk about these things as evil, but if there's no such thing as good and evil, then that falls. There's an inconsistency there. Now, nobody's happy with that kind of an answer for the reason I also gave earlier. We're all moral beings. Now, I'm going to cut to the chase of this because we could spend a long time dealing with it. Inevitably, at this point, and I've just been debating this in North America, inevitably you come to the thing, but surely, and this is Stephen Fry, surely a good God could have done something about it. Surely he could have made a world in which these things don't happen. Of course he could, is my answer to that. But you wouldn't be in it. For the simple reason that it would have been populated by automata and robots. You see, I think C.S. Lewis is right, that if you have a world in which love is possible, hate must be possible. If you can say yes, you must be able to say no. That's the flip side of it. And therefore, part, the moral evil part, is inevitable. And all of us have sat up till midnight, especially when we're students, and said, well, a good God, all-powerful, should, would, and we go on and on and on. 
and we're not happy. Why are we not happy? For a very simple reason. Because when I look out at the world, as Stephen Fry does, I see a mixed picture. I see beauty and barbed wire. I see two cathedrals. Coventry Cathedral or Dresden Cathedral and Christchurch Cathedral. Coventry, moral evil. Christchurch, natural evil. And as you look at those two cathedrals, you see some beauty and, as I put it, barbed wire. So, if we're never going to solve the philosophical question, I think the time has come to ask a different question. And here's my different question. Granted that it's like that. Granted that most of us will go into eternity with unresolved questions. Is there any evidence anywhere that there exists a God that you could trust with it? Now that's a big question. Is there any evidence anywhere that there's a God that you could trust with it? My answer to that is yes. And it brings us straight to the heart of Christianity, the cross. Because if that is God, at the very least, it's telling you very powerfully that God has not remained distant from the problem of suffering, but has himself become part of it. And presumably with the resurrection, that he over, overcomes that evil. Without the resurrection, it's meaningless. And having the resurrection puts a completely new light on everything. Because atheism tells you death is the end. There's no justice, there's no hope, there's no nothing. But with the resurrection, you'll notice that the early apostles, all of them, said that guarantees a final judgment. And that was a glorious doctrine. Because it meant that conscience was going to be backed up, there was going to be a fair assessment, justice was going to be done. That gives me hope. Atheism removes all hope. It is a hopeless faith. Now that's a very brief, and I, I almost uh, fear to say things in such a brief way because I know that there are people suffering, but that is the only answer I have ever discovered to give away into people's hearts. It's almost a shame to ask another question after that because that is such a helpful and profound point. But one of the things I found very striking about what you've done this evening is, um, is that you've gone to evidence, but the evidence you've gone to is Jesus. Mm -hmm. Now, mostly when people set up science versus <clears throat> religion, um, the arena of evidential um, debate that we go to is, is the universe. Um, why have you chosen Jesus? Well, simply because I don't like to give the same talk all the time. <laughs> now, that's not a, a fair answer. I did actually, if you analyze it carefully, give several arguments that had to do with the nature of science and so on, and they are what I would call evidence. But when it comes to the whole question of who God is, the cosmos tells you relatively little. 
and the New Testament admits it. You see, I always have that in the back of my mind. Let me tell you what my axiom is in these things. When Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, and he's giving arguments showing that people are guilty, actually, and responsible before God, his first argument comes from the fact that he claims that the invisible things of God are clearly perceived from the beginning in the things that are made. But then he says what it is of God you can see in creation. Two things, his eternal power and Godhead. And most scholars think that second thing means you can see that there is a God and that he's powerful. You cannot, by the wildest stretch of the imagination, by studying, which I like to do through my telescope, the Andromeda galaxy, get to understand the heart of Christianity because it's history and experience specific. And you see, it's the question of God, the grand designer and the creator. But God is much more than that. If we're going to get to know God, we must bring in evidence from history, the life, death, resurrection, all the things connected with Jesus Christ, and then our own experience of responding to him, you see. But even there, I was talking to an audience recently and somebody called out, do you believe Christianity is falsifiable in the scientific sense? I said, of course it is. Christ, and the example I gave, which surprised them, of course, because they, they weren't expecting this, I said, Christ says that if a person repents and trusts him, they'll receive forgiveness, peace with God. He'll transform their life. I said, if we meet here next year, I'll bring 50 or 500 people who've had that experience. You bring 50 or 500 who've been transformed by atheism. And I begin to take you seriously, you see. That Christianity actually makes claims that are testable in life. So I alternate between the two. And that's the kind of backstage information that you've wrung out of me. Does that answer your question? And, and it's very helpful because I think um, too often we're told that, that, um, that Christianity is a different kind of truth. Um, so science is true in the way that everybody else understands truth. And Christianity is true in some other kind of way that nobody's yes, quite sure. Yes, in other it words, is. it isn't true. Uh, well, no, it's, it's a very interesting thing. Stephen Jay Gould, uh, who was uh, is always worth reading, he was a paleontologist, brilliant man, but he, he, he talked about the two magisteria. See, you can be happy with science and religion, provided you keep them apart. That sounds wonderful until you read the subtext, which is that science deals with the true truth, the objective universe, and Christianity deals with Santa Claus and the truth fairy. In other words, sheer fantasy. And that will not do. And, and one of the things that's so obvious is when Genesis says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it's talking about the same universe that the scientists are talking about. And we need to take on board that overlap and not mysticize Christianity to such an extent that we're talking about it's a different kind of truth. In other words, it's not true at all. Which is why I thought your example of the boiling kettle was very helpful. Mm. Those are two explanations. They are equally true explanations. Yes, they are. And they're equally necessary. Yeah. Yes, that's right. 
John, I wanted to ask you something about, um, about miracles. Because you see, miracles are kind of germane to this discussion. Because, they um, are. Partly because they are, in some ways, part of the atheist case against Christianity is the kind of randomness of them. You know, if God is able to intervene and <clears throat> heal this person, why doesn't he do it for everybody? So that's part of the, the objection. Um, and, uh, of course, the other objection is, is simply that, that, well, they don't happen. Mm. We know that the laws of nature are such. They are events that we will one day be able to explain by some other law of nature which we haven't yet discovered. Um, so I guess the question is, what is a miracle? And how do miracles interact with the way in which we understand scientific action to take place in the world? Well, the word miracle comes from the Latin miraculum, which is something to be wondered at. And the New Testament, in John particularly, uses the term sign, semion, something that from which we get semiotics, something that shows the deeper meaning. And I would want to say that those terms are very helpful, but what they're pointing at is something, and now I'm going to bring in another term, and that is supernatural. You see, If we look at the universe, we, we call it nature. Now, the, defining nature is quite, is quite difficult, but C.S. Lewis has made a pretty good shot at it. Nature is that which goes on of its own accord. And the main objection, I get it all the time uh, from scientists, and they won't even start thinking, and this is important. If you go and say, well, I believe Jesus rose from the dead, they say, look, there's no point in you discussing with me a specific case when miracles don't happen full stop. And therefore, I've come to the conclusion that there are two questions that are quite separate. There's first the in-principle question. Can miracles occur? That is, is there a supernatural dimension or is this cosmos all it is? It's a closed, um, it's a closed flat, so to speak. It's a, it's a, it's a closed universe of cause and effect. Or is there a God who can intervene in it? Now, the in-principle question is vitally important. And I think the easiest way to approach it is by pointing out that Hume, David Hume, who said miracles are a violation of the laws of nature, was dead wrong. Now, I say that with some authority because it's not my authority. The world's leading authority on David Hume was the philosopher from Reading, Anthony Flew. And I managed to get an interview with him not long before he died. And I asked him about this, and he said, I was completely wrong about Hume. You know, Anthony Flew in high old age came to believe that there was a God of some kind. He actually came to believe that because of the nature of DNA, which is very interesting and irritated a vast number of scientists by saying so. But the interesting thing is this, and Lewis is still, I think, one of the best people to analyze it in a way which you can grasp instantly. And he tells this little, suppose I'm staying in London last night and I put 100 pounds in a drawer and I put 100 pounds in tonight, I've got 200 pounds. 100 plus 100 is 200. I wake up tomorrow, open the drawer, and find 50 pounds in it. 
do I conclude that the laws of arithmetic have been broken or the laws of England? <laughs> now you're laughing because you've seen something which you may not have seen before. And that is the word law means two different things. That's where the confusion lies. You see, a law of nature is not like a law of the land. Analyze this story a little further. How do you know the laws of England have been broken? Because you know the laws of arithmetic have not been broken. You see, your problem was you thought that that drawer was a closed system. It turned out not to be. A person put their hand in it and took 150 quid out of it. The laws of arithmetic can't break that, can't prevent that. The laws of nature are massively misunderstood. And David Hume didn't understand them. In fact, David Hume was one of the world's worst people to make that objection because he didn't believe in the uniformity of nature and he didn't believe in the law of cause and effect, the only basis which you could set up a law of nature. So he was a very contradictory individual. But leaving that aside, you see, if, to bring it down to Christianity, if I were claiming that Jesus rose from the dead by some natural process going on in the tomb five minutes before he rose, that would be breaking the laws of nature. But I'm not claiming that. I'm claiming that God, by his power, raised him from the dead. The laws of nature can't stop that. It is a law of nature that dead bodies don't normally rise. But no statistical evaluation of all the graves in history could prove to you that it is impossible. You can only say it's statistically improbable, which we knew anyway. So it seems to me, and Lewis has this down to a fine art, I think, that Hume was simply wrong. And miracles don't violate the laws of nature. So that whole thing disappears. So what you've got to do now is say, what is the evidence that the resurrection actually happened because we're not going to take on board every claim to some supernatural happening. But it opens a way for doing that. But if you don't answer the in-principle objection, you'll never get, I find, people to take seriously the actual specific evidences. And what about the question about the, the randomness of miracles, why God does some and not, not others? If he's able to do a miracle, heal this person and that person, why doesn't he do all of it? Well. Applying the word random to them, is that a fair description? What you notice in Scripture is they're clumped. They're very clearly clumped together. There's a series of things in the book of Exodus. There's a series of things around the time of Elijah. There's a massive series of things around the time of the Lord. And there are some in the time of the apostles. But it's, it's fairly limited in that sense. So if you like, the distribution is not even. Secondly, within the New Testament, it is marked that when the Lord healed people, he healed them instantly, but he didn't clear out every hospital in Galilee. He didn't heal everybody. There was a rationing of this kind of thing. And I suspect that part of the reason for that is this that there is to be a restoration of all things according to Scripture. But it is to happen at Christ's return. We get glimmerings of what can happen. So you get a healing here, you get a healing there, but you don't necessarily get, there's no guarantee. Even Paul himself, 
who probably had a fairly serious eye disease and asked the Lord to remove it, said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. So sometimes a person's faith can be evidenced more by the way in which they take an illness and bear it than if they get healed from it. It's a very complicated business. The final thing I would say there, and this is a topic in its own right, is that, of course, we cannot deny and wouldn't want to because God does heal today, but he doesn't remove death, does he? And it's very interesting that one of the central statements of the New Testament about God's spirit is he dwells in mortal bodies. That's something that I find some people have not quite taken on board, that our bodies are still mortal. So no amount of faith will guarantee or guarantee some healing. And of course, you know as well as I do that that fine line is very important between trusting God to heal and realizing he might not do it. Because you can awaken people false hopes that can lead to absolute catastrophe in their own personal faith. So it's a complex vision. And it's a bit like the problem of pain and evil. But the promise of the New Testament that there is to be a restoration, I think is a very big thing. And that has to do with the resurrection, the ascension, the return. Which is why Jesus' word of signs the miracles are signs. It's a significant thing. They're not, their significance is not in the miracle itself. It's actually what it points to. That's correct. Which it the, points to something deeper, and it's yeah. pointing to him. Exactly. So what do you think is um, the deeper thing being pointed to in our culture that makes us so vulnerable to atheism? There's a kind of... I'm just thinking of the words of Richard Dawkins, that zeitgeist, a spirit of the time. And ever since the 60s, there's been an anarchical element in our society, a rebellion. They were rebellious years. I lived through them. And I would call them evil years. And the difficulty is there's a moral rebellion against God. And atheism can justify a lot of it. And some of people like Aldous Huxley would say directly, they were delighted when they discovered that there was no God because now they could do what they liked. And I do think we've got to admit and face the fact that there is a certain amount of telling people what they'd love to hear because people like to take the restraint off. And if it's coupled with constant telling them that they are merely animals, it is not to be surprised at when they start to behave like them. So I think there's all kinds of factors going in there. And of course, we've got very powerful forces at work telling people that atheism is the default norm. You know, the European Constitution has written God out of it, just airbrushed the most of history out. And we are told in this country, in no uncertain terms, even by the BBC, that naturalism is the default position. I don't believe it is. And we need to, in sensible ways, we can protest against that. But when you get a terrific machine putting that out, and political correctness then takes over, 
and stops you making any sensible criticism because you mustn't offend anybody, it makes it a very dangerous mix, it seems to me, a paralyzing mix. But that, it's, that's actually quite helpful, that, that sort of theme of lawlessness, because actually um, one of the places where I think youngsters are most affected by this atheism is in comedy. Um, all the modern comics um, poke fun at God. It's just part of any stand-up routine. Yes, yes. Um, and, that, and that's harder to counter in a way than this sort of rational argument that you've been putting. It just makes a mockery of it. Yes, that's right. That's right. And they made a mockery of Christ. It's not new, dealing with things by mockery, but it's extremely superficial. We've got about um, 20 minutes or so left, and now is a good time for um, questions from you. So if you have a, have a question, um, we would love to give you a chance to, uh, to ask that. And uh, the way we're going to do this is to just collect maybe um, five or six questions all together. And then uh, John is going to have a go at answering all of them in one go. He's good at this kind of thing. Well, the idea of that is simply that everybody wants to know what everybody else's questions are. And it gives us a spectrum so that we can relate them to one another. So just state your question as briefly as possible, remembering that takes time away from the next person. I'll write it down and we'll see how we get on. There's the first one. So if you have a question, put your hand in the air. We've got a uh, microphone here. Uh, um, we've got uh, one over there. Is that all right? Um, okay, there's, first one here. First there's one here. three here and two there. Yeah. Uh, hello. Um, in talking about pain and evil, um, you mentioned that if people have a choice, if we didn't have the choice to choose evil, then we'd become automata. Um, what does that then mean for the afterlife, heaven, or the new, the new world where there's no pain or suffering? Are we then automata in that new world? Okay, and, I've got it. Yeah. Two. What are some everyday things we can do to, to, to speak against gently this idea, the false dichotomy between science and faith? Sorry, I missed the first part of your sentence. What are some every th everyday things we can do when speaking you know, to our friends and about this false... Um, distance between science and faith. Okay. You gave, oh, sorry. Um, you quoted um, that very nihilistic statement by Dawkins about there being no good and no evil, etc. Yes. But I've heard him say quite recently that he's actually a convert of Sam Harris's The Moral Landscape, where he thinks that science can. Uh, through the science of human flourishing give a basis for objective moral values and duties. So why can't atheists use the science of human flourishing as the basis of objective moral truths? Thank you. Um, could you comment on irreducible complexity? Yes. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Hello. Oh, yeah, I'm on. Uh, you were talking about how children um, wouldn't really be taught morality and ethics if, it, if there was no religion. Um, what about all the schools, in, you know, mainly in America, uh, who are teaching that children are going to burn in hell? Uh, you know, what about that? Very poor, uneducated kids and families who 
wants Sorry, to see Sorry, what about schools in America who teach what? Who are teaching that if children do, you know, do bad, they're going to go to hell. Oh, right, okay. You know, is, you're talking about that there's going to be, you know, no morality without religion, but yes. do you really think that, you okay. know... Okay. Oh, I'll stop then. I think I've got that one. One more. Professor Lennox, considering uh, Stephen Fry has got very many followers and he's said some very harsh things, you obviously feel convicted and you start a big chance of turning it the situation round because it sounds like he's between the rock and the hard place. Sorry, I, 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 I couldn't hear. Can you hear? Okay, that? what I'm saying is Stephen Fry has got quite a number of followers. You are not happy about his comment. Oh, Stephen Fry, right, yes. okay. And considering you are in a position to be able to challenge him or turn the debate round, um, what strategy do you have in place so that we can defeat atheism? Huh. Okay, shall we try these for a minute? Oh, okay. <clears throat> well, let's, let's have a look at these. I'll start with the last one first. Stephen Fry, you say, I'm not happy with what he said. I wouldn't put it that way. I'm sad at what he says. Very sad that a person feels like that about God. What strategy in place? Well, when people talk like that about God, there's usually a reason. And it may be very hard to detect. The late Christopher Hitchens, I felt a, a real empathy for him and a sympathy for him. After all, as a young man, he was taken to Florence where he had to identify the dead body of his mother who'd committed suicide in a suicide pact with a defrocked priest. And I say, what would you think of God if that's the case? And my heart goes out to someone like that. So I think before we come down heavily in judgment, I would want to ask a whole lot of quiet personal questions as to why the venom, why the vehemence, what, what's going on there. It's not entirely rational, you see. And therefore one suspects that there's been serious damage somewhere. Now, I don't know. But as a strategy, I think above all things, we need to learn to listen to people to listen very seriously and very hard because, let me just give you a little statistic. A friend of mine in America, and he wrote about it and he's gonna write a book about it. His name's Larry Taunton. He invited leaders of atheists and skeptical groups in American universities to come and have a meal with him. And the deal was, I'll give you a meal if you'll tell me your story. I'm not gonna tell you my story, I wanna hear your story. Every single one of them, their atheism was a reaction to a negative experience of Christianity. Everyone. That tells you something. So, I just feel, having had experience of some very high-powered atheists, that we have to be so, so careful in judging. But I'm sad when people feel they have to say things like that. Now, how much of a showbiz element and drawing attention and all this kind of thing there is in it, I just don't know. Okay, well, that's about that. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, this is a Q&A, so by definition, it's inadequate.
I can only give initial responses to questions. Um, <clears throat> and perhaps I link with that the second last one. Teaching children that they'll go to hell if they do bad things. You notice Christ didn't talk about hell to children. He talked about hell to uh, bigoted religious people. You see, you can frighten a child very easily, and I was brought up in a country where it happened very often. That is not the same thing as moral conviction. Now, God is sometimes very merciful, and he accepts that fear, but it's not a very strong basis for growing up a strong person. And you will experience that if you meet people that, from this background, often they've got rid of the fear, but they've had no real moral conviction, and therefore their life becomes morally stunted. Now, a lot could be said about that from a psychological point of view, but simply looking at the New Testament, you can see the imbalance of that. The Lord's attitude to children was, suffer the little children to come to me. That's a very different thing. So, um, <clears throat> what can I say about irreducible complexity? Probably nothing useful. Um, this is a, a huge topic. It's a topic within a topic within a topic. And uh, just to mention it like this, uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. How many people know what the concept means? High, hands up. Well, relatively few, you see. So I'd have to start explaining that and then explaining its context. And that's going to take a very long time. So what I suggest you do, since it's very few of you know about it, is read my book, God's Undertaker. And <laughs> you read all that I know about it. It's a, it's a notion that's quite old, it's been popularized by Michael Behe, that certain things are of such a complexity in biology that they could not possibly have come together by small um, accretive steps. It's a very controversial topic, I think there's something in it, but to an, you need an hour's lecture, it just wouldn't be fair in order to get the the concepts out. So that's the minimum about that. Um, the nihilistic statement of Richard Dawkins that I did use, and he's, he's been converted by Sam Harris. This is a very interesting phenomenon, actually. And I, I, I delayed publication of my book, um, Gunning for God, for this precise reason. Because Richard Dawkins had suddenly seen the light and felt that Sam Harris had solved a very ancient problem of David Hume's that now allowed Richard Dawkins to change his view. And his view earlier was it's very difficult to get values without some sort of religious dimension. Sam Harris claims in a book called The Moral Landscape to have solved Hume's problem. Hume's problem is simply this that he noticed that this is one place I agree with David Hume, oddly enough, bless his heart, um, that he noticed in discourse people would be describing a situation and is, and they'd suddenly change their form of dialogue to ought. They were moving from is to ought, and he said that's not legitimate. And from then on, there's been an industry with increasing intensity as the years have gone on, to say, oh yes, you can get 
from is to ought. And in the book, The Moral Landscape, Sam Harris claims to have done it and Richard Dawkins claims to have been convinced by him. Well, I don't think Sam Harris has done it at all because what he's done is get the ought into the is. And of course you can get an ought from is if you put the ought into the is in the first place. Now that's my crude approximation of an answer to it. And I think that Hume is still standing right. And if you Google the internet, the is to ought problem, it'll keep you up for many nights reading. And I would just say that if you're going to do that, uh, one thing that trips a lot of people up in the first hurdle is, and it's tripped a lot of philosophers up, I'm amazed to say, that if you want to catch the bus at five past nine, you ought to leave right away. So there's an is, the bus is leaving at five past nine, and there's an ought, and you're getting an ought from an is. You're not. Because ought has two meanings in most languages. There's no moral obligation for you to catch that bus. It's what we call the ought of prudence in technical language. It's not a moral ought. You just might want to hear the rest of my evening session with you, you see. So it's not a moral ought. So you're not getting a moral ought from it is at all. And Sam Harris, slightly more subtle, but I don't think he's sold it at all. And what's more, atheist philosophers don't think he's sold it. There's a big literature out there that I'll not go into it. I quote some of it in my Gunning for God, so I'll have to leave you with that. And one of the very interesting things you see is that if you remove the transcendent in morality, you haven't many logically possible sources on which to base morality. You've got raw nature. You've got the genes. And some people like the famous entomologist E.O. Wilson and Michael Ruse say, well, morality is an illusion. This is a direct quote. Fobbed off at us by our genes to get us to cooperate. In other words, morality is immoral. I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd. What fascinates me about this is once you come to the level of genetics or biology to get your morality, the problem is that you can get any morality you like by studying animals. Take a crude, a very crude sway through that. Darwin was a nice chap with a big beard and he studied ants. And he saw that they cooperated. Well, there's a basis for altruism, you might argue. Spencer looked at nature and saw it was a struggle for the survival of the fittest. We all know what happened when that has been applied as a moral principle. It led to the death camps. I repeat, one of the biggest problems at the moment in the ethical sphere is you can get any morality you like, depending on which animal you study. That raises very big questions. Are humans merely animals? To which my answer, unsubstantiated, because it's a huge topic, is no. They are made in the image of God. No animal is made in the image of God. The universe and the animal world shows the glory of God is not made in his image. So these are huge problems, the status of human life. But I do not think um, Sam Harris has solved it at all. Now, um, talking about pain and evil and choice and automata, what about when we get to heaven? 
Good question. Shall we be able to opt out? Well, I would want to ask a whole series of questions here. First of all, is heaven a repeat of what happens here? Is it a return to paradise on earth? The answer is no. The, the geometric picture I have, I don't know whether I got it from Lewis or not, is not a circle going back to the start, but a spiral where you go upwards and you end up above where you were before. Why will there be no sin in heaven? And why does that not mean that love will cease in heaven? Well, it seems to me that one of the reasons is that when I trust Christ, something irreversible happens. I receive eternal life, which by definition can never die. I have used that freedom to choose something irreversible. And it's along that kind of line that I think we can't just extrapolate and go round in circles again. Although, we'll find out when we get there, won't we? And then the final one is practical and everyday, everyday things we can do in speaking regarding science and faith. Well, the first one to do is don't speak about science and faith ever. That's an atheist formulation, science and faith. That's exactly what I was trying to counteract in the early part of my talk. Now let me make it explicit. I'm frequently asked to lecture on science and faith, and I immediately say, faith in what? I can lecture on science and faith without ever mentioning God. I can talk about faith in science. You see, putting science over here and faith there is exactly what the atheists want us to think. Exactly what they want us to think. Science and religion. We're using faith as a shorthand for the Christian faith. I don't mind speaking on science and faith in God, but I'd rather leave the word faith out so I speak on science and God because faith is involved in science and anything that erodes that impression and gives the idea that faith is religious and is opposed to science, I think we're starting on the wrong foot. Now that's just a little correction if you don't mind me saying so, but it's a vastly important one because if we start on the wrong foot, then we have to start digging ourselves out of the hole that we've got into. What can we do? Well, <coughs> excuse me. When I started at university, I didn't know what to do. So what I did was I had a tape recorder. Perhaps you've never heard of one. It has got big reels. And it has got a hopeless thing that runs between them called a tape. And that gets entangled round your feet and round your hair. And, and you can never get the thing working. But I had one of those. And I had one or two talks that I felt were good explanations of the Christian faith. Better than I could do. So I invited students in to listen for 10 minutes at a time and discuss it. That's how I started. And that's why some of us, and here as well, that's why we're having this podcast, is to provide resources for people who are beginning and they don't know all the answers. I don't know all the answers. But one of the best things to do is to get somebody in to watch something or listen to something that's short and then you discuss it. You can do that. 
And if they ask you questions and you can't answer them, you say, I can't answer them, but I want to go away and think about them. And you'll grow. The thing will become real to you as the questions you face are coming out of your own experience. Rather than reading hundreds of books which you'll never remember anyway, it's best to let it flow out of living experience. And that's why, for instance, um, I've got a website with loads of stuff on it that people use all, all around the world for this very purpose. And I know they're producing it here in this church. Use those kind of things, but keep them short and you answer the questions. And you know, if you get just a couple of people doing that, it, it, it makes such, it's so interesting because you really find out what people's questions are. So that's how I would suggest proceeding on that. John, thank you so much tonight. You've ranged over a huge number of uh, questions and touched on lots of different issues. And um, I'm sure you'd have liked a lot more time to do that. We'd have loved to listen to you a lot, lot longer as well. But uh, we're really grateful to you for coming tonight and offering us your wisdom. So uh, can we give John a very warm... That was GodPod, a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.